Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. Well, not quite completely across the political spectrum. We focus on the center-left to the center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. I also write a syndicated column, and I'm joined by Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal and Damon Linker of the week. Linda Chavez is away this week, but we are delighted to welcome another Brookings luminary, Jonathan Rauch. He is also a contributor to The Atlantic and author of a really interesting article in National Affairs about political polarization that I'd like to get to in the course of this podcast. So since we last met, uh, we've had fallouts of various kind uh, from the... Um, strike on Qasem Soleimani. Thousands of Iranians took to the streets at first to mourn Soleimani, and then after it became clear after the Iranians acknowledged that they were the ones who had shot down that Ukrainian passenger airliner, thousands more, probably different Iranians, um, thronged the streets to protest the government, as indeed they had been doing before, um, before the uh, whole imbroglio with uh, Qasem Soleimani. Uh, Donald Trump told Laura Ingram that at least four U.S. embassies had been targeted, but none of the president's advisors and no member of Congress who received secret briefings on the matter could confirm that. It was also revealed a few days later that Trump had given the orders to kill Soleimani seven months ago. The Democrats held a debate uh, that touched on foreign policy, health care, and climate change, but the big headline was the Bernie Sanders-Elizabeth Warren kerfuffle. Both houses have passed the new USMCA trade agreement, and the US and China have announced a truce in the trade war. Big week, more things to report. Nancy Pelosi named the impeachment managers, and the articles of impeachment were finally delivered to the Senate. But meanwhile, Giuliani associate Lev Parnas has told quite a tale about his work in Ukraine. He says the president was fully informed of everything he did to extract dirt on Joe Biden, and he has provided the House with transcripts of emails and texts. Finally, internationally, Putin announced plans for a government reorganization that many interpret as his bid to be leader for life. Trump's letter of congratulations is no doubt in the mail. Puerto Rico suffered yet another natural disaster. President Trump is going to raid the Pentagon again for $7.2 billion this time uh, in money that was meant for military construction, but will go, he says, to build his border wall. This despite the report just coming out that the GAO has said the initial raiding of the, um, of the Pentagon's budget uh, was unconstitutional. So, or illegal, not unconstitutional. So let's, uh, <laughs> you guys, <laughs> we can, anything in that list is, is, is open so for discussion. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and uh, and I, now the good news. And now the good news. Well, of course, the biggest news this week we haven't even touched on, and that is that uh, what, they're, what they're calling Megxit, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle uh, departing from the royal family. I, I should say the funniest line that I saw about that was... Um, this is somebody tweeted. This is the first time I've seen someone announce that he's leaving his family to spend more time at work. <laughs> 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 oh, but anyway, um, 
if you want to start with Megxit, we can, but I thought we'd start with the Suleimani aftermath. Um, uh, Bill, you had a column talking about the fact that the country is not rallying around the president. Why don't you fill us in on that a little bit and give us your impressions of whether at this stage you think uh, that it was on balance, uh, well, what lessons learned and whether it was on balance something that makes impeachment that much more difficult. The uh, decision to kill Suleimani uh, has had no effect on public opinion, uh, certainly no effect on public opinion about Donald Trump, and I doubt very much that it will have an effect on impeachment either. But as I, as I indicated in the column to which you referred, it did provide a remarkable x-ray of what Americans are thinking about and worrying about right now. And you have a very narrow plurality in the mid to high 40s compared to the mid to the low to mid 40s in favor of the operation, but at the same time, large majorities saying that it made the country less safe and that in, it materially increased the chances that we would end up in a war with Iran. Uh, and a fair number of people, including a substantial chunk of, the Republic, uh, of Republicans, apparently hold all three of those thoughts in their head at the same time. Go figure. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, I think the, the jury's still out on the net effects of these events for U.S. foreign policy. It's obvious for reasons think somewhat unrelated to the strike on, on Suleimani, that the Iranian regime is in real trouble, probably the worst trouble it's been in in 40 years. Uh, I doubt very much that this will lead to the kind of regime change that John Bolton and others have long yearned for. Uh, I think it could, it could lead to an even more severe period of repression of ordinary people. But, uh, but the idea that it's going to have a huge effect on domestic politics, particularly the impeachment, uh, the, the prospects for removing the president from office, I think are very hard to tease out from the evidence available so far. You know, the uh, Iranian people have not been shy about taking to the streets. I mean, I, I can think of numerous examples over the past 10 years right. when they have just thronged the thoroughfares. There was the Green Revolution mm -hmm, in, mm -hmm. early in Obama's uh, tenure when uh, it really looked like the regime was teetering uh, because of mass, mass protests over a stolen election. Um, just recently, in the period pre-Suleimani killing, uh, there were huge protests about the price of gasoline that the government was scheduled to increase. Uh, people were out in the streets in, in huge numbers, and this time... Um, unlike in the past. I mean, they, they have always treated protesters harshly, but the, this last time they were responsible for between 600 and 1,000 deaths, depending on which sources you believe. Um, and so it's not, you know, it's, it, I, I used to get excited by seeing, you know, mass uprisings against the Iranian regime. And uh, I've come to view them slightly um, Sadly, now that, you know, yes, these people desperately want a new government, 
but uh, going out into the streets just seems, just seems to result in people getting killed, but the same old thing, the, the repression works. Uh, Damon, do you, uh, uh, do you have any optimism about the, the chances for this to uh, tip the, the Iranian regime into, uh, well, out the door, as it were? Well, not particularly. I mean, I tend to be pretty uh, skittish about making precise predictions about situations that are so much a function of uh, circumstances that can't be anticipated, and especially in a situation like this when I'm yeah, not an expert on it's, Iran. It's so. safest not to make predictions about the future. My best ones well, are always about the past. <laughs> well, I, I mean, if we're talking about, say, the Democratic primary, I feel like I have somewhat of a kind of mastery of the facts on the ground. Yeah, I understand. What's going on in Iran, I don't read or speak Farsi. I, I, it's, yeah. it's pretty far afield, and believe me, that does not keep people in Washington from... <laughs> Uh, opining, but I'm a yep. little bit more circumspect. You're very about it. refreshing, I, I, Damon. I, I would say though that um, in in the kind of the political sciency way to look at it would be to to at least note that Iran is in fact a nation, um, unlike say Iraq, where it is sort of a nation that's been that was cobbled together in the wake of the imperialist era of very discreet. Uh, factional parts, different ethnic groups and other factions, and it, it it really was held together for a long time by Saddam Hussein's repression. Uh, and so once he was gone, it sort of started breaking apart, and in that vacuum you ended up with an insurgency and then a civil war and the mess that we've been dealing with there ever since. But Iran is a coherent nation, and as Persia has existed for a very long time, thousands of years, and so uh, how that would unfold if the regime destabilized um, is, is, is probably a very different scenario than what we saw in Iraq or have seen in Libya, where uh, civil war and disorder and fracturing of, of the whole country seemed to be in order in Iran you would probably have a fight of factions for a kind of stronger control of the center. Uh, and so, as you indicated, Mona, I think that uh, the risk would be uh, kind of a new, even more repressive regime coming into play unless unless uh, uh, the current regime is overthrown and somehow a transition to something better could be managed. But again, uh, I, I throw up my hands and say, hell if I know. Yeah, well, uh, th that's a, an excellent point about the contrast between Iran and Iraq. And let me let me just add um, one thing because uh, uh, so much of the American commentary um, after these dueling demonstrations uh, went like this. Um, you know, people who um, were against Trump said, um, "Look at all those people out in the streets protesting their own government." You see, Trump has started something, and that's great. And, uh, and, and uh, the other side was, um, you know, look at all the people who thronged the streets to mourn for Soleimani. You see, Trump has unleashed something he cannot control. He's, he has destroyed the, uh, the unpopularity of the regime and replaced it with unpopularity of the U.S. And I would just say it's probably both. I mean, Iran is very riven. Uh, it still has huge, I, I also, uh, I to add, no expert on the country, but from what I can understand, it has tremendous um, bifurcations between the secular and the religious um, and uh, not 
completely unlike our country. This, the religious people tend to be more out in the countryside and the non-religious tend to be in the cities. But, um, but there, there are great divisions, and so both things can be true. Some of those people out protesting, uh, you know, mourning for Suleimani may have been sincere. Some may not. The government apparently did give everybody the day off from school and all that to get them out there. And, uh, but anyway, it's uh, the, the country may may well be divided. So, so Jonathan, I, I want to move to the U.S. side of things vis-a-vis Iran uh, with you, which is. Um, what about this um, this uh, revelation that well well it's not new we know that the president just cannot tell the truth and so he he says whatever he feels like saying in the moment um, you know the hurricane is going to hit Alabama and I was right about it and you, you know that's the most trivial example there are many many more serious ones. But, uh, but this one, you know, in order to justify the idea of killing Soleimani now, he said, oh, there was an attack on four embassies. And then you have uh, uh, Secretary Esper, the Secretary of Defense, asked point blank whether he knew of an attack being planned on four embassies, which he would have to know if the president knew it. He said, no, he never heard that. So um, what is this further undermining... Uh, confidence in our institutions and uh, the kinds of things that you write so eloquently about? Well, in the world of disinformation, which I think is the relative world, the, the relevant world, the small lies are the big lies. There is no distinction. What you're trying to do with disinformation is lie so much that people lose the ability to distinguish not just truth from falsehood, but big lies from little lies. So, Trump says, I did it because he's an imminent threat. He's going to blow up four embassies. This is revealed to be a lie. Trump doesn't say, sorry, I was wrong. He says it doesn't matter. He, he says was a bad guy anyway. because he yeah. was a bad guy anyway. Yeah. Now, what he's done there is shift ground from an arguably legal use of presidential action, which would be to stop an imminent threat in a theater where military force is authorized to just saying, I'm the president, I can kill people if I think they're bad. A very different kind of proposition, but notice the seamless shift from one to the other. Yeah. Notice that we're talking about the fact that he lied along the way, missing the fact that he's changed the terms of debate. This is disinformation at its best, and the guy is a master of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, it... it should ignite a huge debate in our country about the limits of presidential authority. Um, but of course, when uh, the Democrats moved to uh, pass a new war powers resolution, um, many Republicans said this proves that they love terrorists <laughs> and that they're on the side of Suleimani. And you even had Nikki Haley saying that they mourn. The only people who yeah. mourn Suleimani, she said, uh, are Democrats or Democratic leaders or some such. And uh, Collins, the congressman from Georgia, said something similar, but he at least sort of apologized. Yeah, he kind of walked it back. The, yeah. 
we should just remind ourselves that those, those tactics, at least, are not new. We saw a lot of that from the George W. Bush administration. You know, are you with us or with, are you with the terrorists? So that's not new. Yeah. One of the obsessions Although, I have... Although, can I just interrupt you for one sec? Hold that thought, okay? okay. We are obsessions. But I, ju- I have to push back a tiny bit and just say, yes, there was that on the side of the Bush administration. But... Uh, correspondingly, a lot of Democrats, in fact, it became sort of a mantra among the Democrats. It wasn't that Bush made an unwise decision and relied on faulty intelligence. It was that he lied us into war. And I don't think there's any evidence for that. Yes. And I don't mean to equate this president with that one. A way to think about Trump is there are some precedents for a lot of what he does, but he takes everything and multiplies it by 10, if not 100, removes all restraints. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, three of the of the points that you mentioned in your opening list, Mona, share a common theme, and I just wanted to point that point that out. And that theme is this slow moving, what I think is a constitutional slow moving crisis as Congress sheds its powers, hollows itself out willingly in a way that's come to badly destabilize the American system. But consider this week we've seen GAO announces President broke the law, the impeachment, the Impoundment Control Act, in shifting money around without congressional authorization. Congress does nothing. Mm -hmm. President announces he can kill foreigners when he feels like it without congressional authorization or approval. Congress does nothing. Impeachment moves to the Senate. President says, I won't cooperate, collaborates openly with senators to make sure that doesn't happen. Again, Congress does nothing. On many fronts here, the theme is the hollowing out of that institution. Well, the good news is that people are becoming increasingly aware of and concerned about the point that Jonathan just made. Uh, I attended an all-morning bipartisan meeting convened by the Brennan Center, uh, and people people across a pretty wide political spectrum were concerned about the mounting imbalance between executive overreach and congressional abdication. Mm -hmm. And I think we're on the cusp of a very fertile period of rethinking basic constitutional arrangements. I certainly hope so, uh, because as a dyed-in-the-wool Madisonian, I have long believed, based on the plain meaning of Madison's words, that our constitutional system will not work if people in the different institutions are not attached to those institutions and not inclined to defend their just constitutional powers. And we're in a situation now where loyalty to party has replaced loyalty to institutions. And it's anybody's guess how our Constitution can function if the basic premise of Madisonian constitutionalism is denied in practice. Damon, do you have any thoughts on um, how we can uh, improve the returns to asserting your own powers as members of Congress? At the moment, it seems the incentives are so stacked against that. Um, you know, they... Yeah, I, I don't really know how to get out of it. I mean, I can help diagnose the problem that Jonathan and uh, Bill have both, I think, summarized pretty nicely. I mean, the the incentive structure is such that well, parties are weaker, individual politicians 
are sort of free agents who utilize attachment to an identity with the party as a kind of shorthand for an ideological commitment that then gets amplified through various forms of media. Um, you know, there's a, a guy named uh, Jeffrey Toulis at uh, the University of Texas, Austin, who's who's written very interesting things over the years about presidential rhetoric and how in the early days of the Republic, well, basically defined up through, for the most part, uh, to the progressive era, presidents were sort of tried to remain above the fray and to treat themselves as a, a kind of... Um, as not dealing with and talking directly to the people. And in the, the more recent era, especially since uh, kind of post-Reagan uh, and and uh, more recent times, I, it sort of began with the progressives. And it began with Wilson. Of with, yeah. with, with Wilson. With, it did uh, not with begin with Wilson. <laughs> or now we're going to have a fight about it Wilson. Began, Go it, on, Damon. It began with, I mean, according to that, line of argument, which I think is imperfect. It began with Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. No, I, yes. I, I no, will concede that Teddy too. Roosevelt. Yes. yes, yes. Andrew when Jackson. It's Andrew Jackson. Included. Well, that's where I was going next. That's where I really quarreled. You know, here's what I bet we would all agree on. We really need to remove Andrew Jackson from the $20 bill and replace him with Harriet Tubman. Who's for that in, around this table? <laughs> I'll, I'll so vote for it. If I could just finish the yeah. thought. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. The idea, sorry. The idea is that, bunch. that there was a change <laughs> where presidents and, and later uh, even at lower levels in, in Congress, the Senate, where elected representatives at various levels appealed directly to the people by going around institutional checks and uh, not only checks, but kind of filters and intermediaries. And so... The president speaks directly to his greatest supporters through Twitter and uh, online and through Fox News and individual senators and House members can just go on Fox or go on Rush Limbaugh or talk to him or go on Hugh Hewitt and they just speak to their faction of the people who get whipped up and become supporters of them in their future reelection and the intermediary institutions become sort of again as as everyone has been saying, kind of hollowed out. And how you fix that, uh, short of uh, a, a giant blackout that rids us of, of this kind of media infrastructure that we all swim in now, I, I really don't know. So um, this is shooting my my uh, uh, structure and outline for this podcast all to heck. But um, let me uh, just go off on a tangent for a second since it, this seems to lead there. Um, Let's talk a little bit about money, because, of course, um, the the access to money by just being able to directly raise it online has also weakened the political parties. Um, and um, and while you could say that Trump's victory in 2016 represents the fact that if you have a good message, you don't need money and he didn't spend that much money on his race. Um, I think that's um, too simple because, you know, he, he himself is extremely, extremely rich. Maybe he's a billionaire, maybe not, but he has a lot of money and he was able to fly around the country and, uh, and take advantage of his huge name ID that, was, that came from 10 years as a 
as a TV star. Um, but uh, but let's look at what's happening right now in 2016. Tom Steyer, who is... It's 2020. Sorry. Yeah, 2020. <laughs> How you. time flies yeah. when we're having fun. <laughs> right, right, right. Thanks, yeah. Can it please um, be 2025? <laughs> <laughs> Sold. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> but, As President uh, Pompeo takes the oath of office. <laughs> or no, President no. Carlson. Or President Trump Jr. Or Trump yeah, Jr. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Trump yeah. Jr. Oh, God. Oh, okay. Oh, bleep. All right. Let's, let's get out of our nightmares and uh, <laughs> back to so but look at Tom Steyer okay no no name recognition um, just money okay and so here's a, a laboratory example he has been rising has been rising in the polls purely on the strength of that money and hey w- waiting in the wings this year we have um, Bloomberg who um, is going to skip the early contest but then you know has said that he might I don't know if he himself has said this, but I've read that he could spend as much as a billion dollars, which is, you know, the kind of thing you find in his sofa cushions, uh, because he's a, he is a real billionaire, apparently worth something close to sixty billion dollars. So he could drop a billion without ever noticing. So, um, what about that? Uh, d- does uh, does the um, the, the change in the way money flows to politics um, affect the, um, the the collapse of gatekeeping institutions? Yes. Okay. Next question. <laughs> but not the way most people think. I'm curious to hear what Bill and Damon think about okay. this, so I'll keep it very short. No, don't bother. It's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Careful. Okay. <laughs> so uh, Americans have spent the last 40 years 50 years making it very, very difficult for political parties to raise money and fairly hard for political candidates to raise money on the assumption that raising money was a bad thing and a compromising thing for them to do without making it any more difficult for private actors like um, 501c3s and super PACs and, of course, tycoons to pump in all the money they want. And the predictable... Although tycoons can only pump it into super PACs or their own candidacies, right? right. Which okay. which they're very happily doing yes. and can do without effective limit. And the predictable result of sending the money everywhere except the political parties is that the political parties have, have somewhat less control over what candidates can do. And there are things we can do about that, and they're not very hard. One of them, which I advocate, would be to lift the limits on giving the political parties mm-hmm. and, in fact, favor the parties. So more of that money comes inside and strengthens parties' ability to say, you get money, you don't. It's not a world changer, but it's a way to think about it. Bigger picture, I have to advertise a wonderful, super important book coming out next week by your former colleague, Yuval Levin. It's called A Time to Build, and it's a comprehensive look at the price we paid for hollowing out institutions like Congress and like political parties, the, the institutions that do the job of organizing us as citizens so we can solve problems together. It ties together lots of the themes we're talking about today. Cannot wait. Oh, Yuval is... Uh, he's in the pantheon, <laughs> or as a friend of mine used to say, the pantheon of the unconfused. <laughs> um, okay, well, can, uh, can I can I add yeah, one thing to sure, that? That's sure, interesting. Sure. I mean, I I think your the concerns you raised about Steyer and Bloomberg are real and important. Um, one additional dimension to this is actually represented on the other side of the spectrum by uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She was in a spat over the last week or so with 
uh, the leadership of the House because she is balking at the, I don't know if it's a written rule or an unwritten rule, to be honest, but the, the expectation that House members are supposed to raise something like a quarter million dollars and give it to the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee to be dispersed as the party sees fit as people are running in races around the country. And she's refusing to hand over this money because she's raising money and has raised more than that minimal expectation and is distributing it as she wishes to harder left candidates around the country, many of whom are primarying more uh, center-left candidates. So there's an, another example of someone, at a, you know, compared to Bloomberg, she's a, a tiny ant on the on the, uh, the, 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 uh, you know, on the picnic bench, uh, of But American you're right, Damon. Damon, you're absolutely right. In terms of the significance of what she's doing, it's up there with Bloomberg. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as far as hollowing out actual existing rules and institutions, it might be even more important. And the political parties for all their flaws, um, used to at least succeed in keeping the real nut jobs um, off the ballots. Um, you, you didn't have uh, people like the witch in, in uh, Delaware and, uh, and frankly, Donald Trump. Um, in or the, frankly, Tom Steyer would Tom, not have been in a Tom debate. Steyer, that's he right. would not have earned that's his right. way through the party to get there. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Uh, let's, um, let's talk about the Democrats for a second. Uh, one of the so some of the Democratic candidates who were most guilty have moved off the stage. But, um, you know, we were talking earlier about um, institutional respect and about the, the Congress being so willing, eager even, to give up its own power. And uh, you, you had candidates like Kamala Harris, um, who and, and to some degree Elizabeth Warren, um, who are running not to reverse this trend, but simply to take advantage of it and saying, you know, well, when I'm president, here's what I'm going to do on the first day through executive power, executive mm -hmm. power. And Elizabeth Pat Warren still talks about executive power she did it the other night uh, at the debate. Um, and uh, this is not true of Biden, and uh, it's less true of, of Sanders. But, uh, but the Democratic Party, it seems to me, is missing an opportunity here to attack Trump exactly for his lawlessness, for his unwillingness to abide by limits on his own power. Um, some of that is actual law breaking, such as Jonathan just mentioned with the OMB saying he cannot do what he did with the uh, military funding. GAO, um, just for the record. Uh, G sorry, GAO. Uh, GAO. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't be. <laughs> OMB <American>. is <laughs> unlikely to take that position. Exceedingly <laughs> unlikely. Mick Mulvaney. Would. Right. But, uh, but, um, but yeah, so, so the, and, and of course, um, you know, I, I, I could imagine a world in which Democratic candidates would, in a full-throated way at a debate, talk, express outrage about, for example, Donald Trump declaring a national emergency uh, in a completely dishonest and disingenuous way to, uh, to spend money that Congress didn't appropriate. We don't see that. What's uh, what's going on, Damon, with uh, with the Democrats in being in missing this this chance? Well, I mean, it's part of the longer term story that we've all been sort of talking about that you have, 
you, you basically have a government is increasingly becoming a kind of negotiation between the presidency and the judiciary where the where Congress sort of steps back and no one in Congress wants to be held responsible for anything that happens because if they actually step up and do take responsibility and things go wrong, then people pay a political price. So it's much easier for them to simply be sort of passive and spend most of their time raising money and trying to keep their jobs. Whereas the presidency kind of pushes the limit by, uh, by engaging in issuing executive orders and trying to do things that it technically should not be doing. And this, of course, uh, has happened on both sides. Uh, Obama did it with immigration in his second term. Uh, and Trump has done it across a whole range of different things. And then the only check on it becomes the courts, where a federal judge somewhere will issue a nationwide injunction, and then it gets halted, and eventually it goes to the Supreme Court, who either accepts the, the, the case and then decides, or lets the lower ruling stand, and that decides what gets done. And so the Democrats watch this, with Trump and they say, well, you know, maybe that's not such a bad way to govern. There's a kind of fatigue about process arguments and a feeling, I think, especially among Democrats with Trump in the White House that like, we're not going to get bogged down in, you're not doing it right. We're going to just say what we want to do and then claim that we'll do anything we need to, to get it done. And it's, it's dangerous and, and not a good development, but it is where we are, I'm afraid. Bill. Well, I think there there are some structural reasons for all of this, one of which is that divided government, which used to be the exception, is now the norm. Right? And if you have divided government in circumstances of deep partisan polarization, then the default outcome uh, is stagnation. Right? It's like a tug of war where both sides are pulling as hard as they can in, op in opposite directions and the knot in the middle of the rope stays exactly where it was. Uh, and I think what uh, one of the things that you're witnessing in the Democratic primary is an implicit lack of confidence that the election of a Democratic president would necessarily bring a Democratic Congress, that is a House and a Senate under the control of the Democratic Party along with it. And so Democratic candidates are looking at the prospect of Mitch McConnell nullifying their agenda and saying to themselves, well, what's the choice? Now, there is How about a, running candidates that can win in well, red states. <laughs> well, there, look, look, there is I was about to say there is a choice and Democrats are doing their best to do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, how else do you explain a Doug Jones in Alabama? Right. So I don't think I don't think the Democrats have been unstrategic either in the House or in the Senate in trying to put up candidates who are more appropriate to the political cultures and political balance in their states than the National Democratic Party is. And certainly if you if you look at 2006 and then again in 2018, whether you're talking about Rahm Emanuel deliberately selecting candidates who could turn Democratic minority into a majority, or a very parallel effort in 2018 where Pelosi and company 
deliberately sought out the kinds of candidates who could prevail in suburban Republican-leaning districts. I, so, but the, but the sad fact is that in circumstances of extreme polarization, that strategy will fail as often as it succeeds. And then what do you do? Now, Joe Biden has an alternative theory of the case, and that is that negotiating in circumstances of divided government need not be futile. And he is taking some heat for saying so, but he's not backing he's not backing down. And so he represents the counterpoint to what Elizabeth Warren is saying. Yeah. And uh, because he's saying that even if we accept divided government as more likely than not, we can act. We just can't get our own way without qualification or compromise. Yeah, I, I have to say that. Um his willingness to stick to that theme um, demonstrated just the other night during the debate again um, was uh, was admirable. And he, I mean, he has also interestingly explicitly repudiated the first day executive order. Yes. Agenda. I was I wanted to ask repeat Mona's question for Bill to get your opinion on would it work for a Democratic presidential candidate to say, I'm campaigning to be a president who won't try to make all the decisions by themselves. I'm against the monarchical presidency. Is there even a constituency for that now? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, Biden is implicitly making that argument. He's saying he's saying that uh, most of the things we want to do as a country and even as a party have to be done with Congress and not around Congress or despite Congress. And I think that's the truth of the matter. Uh, and it, it isn't necessarily the most popular argument in the Democratic Party. But if he gets the nomination, which I think is not a crazy prediction, i do not sure what odds I'd place on it, but uh, if he gets the nomination, that will send a signal that there is at least a plurality within the Democratic Party that's willing to continue, willing to consider the possibility of a return to regular institutional constitutional order. And in fact, his persistent strength during this entire primary season, where he's made a lot of flubs and, and uh, sometimes seemed a little out of it, uh, other times he's been sharp. But, uh, but the fact that his support has been steady, I think suggests, perhaps suggests, it could be other things. But it perhaps suggests that there is a a forty percent or some significant uh, percentage of the Democratic electorate that uh, that is not. Uh, well, we'll find out pretty soon, yeah, won't we're we? We'll find out very very soon. Uh, well, we won't necessarily find out what it means because, you know, interpreting the voter's mind is always uh, always difficult. Some people will say, "Ah, it was all name recognition or something," but uh, <laughs> not when you have so many candidates with ninety percent plus name recognition at this mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, let just for the sake of getting into a particular sort of strategic question, um, Nancy Pelosi this week, yesterday, in fact, finally marched over the uh, articles after holding them uh, for several weeks. Uh, smart strategic decision, dumb strategic decision. What do people around the table think? What do you think, Jonathan? I'm going to go with smart. Okay. It's not a super strong hand. We all know in advance the outcome of this procedure, but this was an effective way of highlighting the fact that Mitch McConnell had intended to turn the Senate trial into a show trial. Mm -hmm. And it was an effective way to protest that. And in the interval, 
some very important news came out, which I think will add to pressure on Republicans, which they will, of course, ignore to have a fair trial. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. That they might to, have the votes. That to, is to uh, say they won't necessarily ignore it because uh, a handful of Republicans will make the difference between a charade and something more closely approximating a real trial. A handful being four. A handful being four, exactly. And, uh, you know, and uh, I mean, it's it's well advertised that Susan Collins has been making the rounds. Uh, she hasn't, you know, talking to other potentially like-minded Republicans, it's not a slam dunk certainty that when the issue is joined officially as to whether or not there should be witnesses, that she will throw her weight on that side. But she is, she and others are certainly trying to prepare for the possibility that that will turn out to be the wisest vote, all things considered. So uh, I wouldn't write off the possibility of, of witnesses. Now, I think the, the fallback position that a lot of Republicans are now reaching is that, well, okay, if the Democrats are going to get their witnesses, then the president is going to get his. Mm-hmm. And I doubt very much that the Democrats would agree to a package that included, let us say, pick a name at random, Hunter Biden, <laughs> which suggests to me that that because it's it would become a kind of mutually assured destruction, they may in the end decide to call no witnesses, not because the Republicans say no witnesses, but because the Democrats are not prepared to pay the price. One of the problems, as I understand it, for a, for a senator in a uh, tough race, mm-hmm. like Cory Gardner mm-hmm. in Colorado, mm-hmm. um, is that if he votes to allow witnesses, um, he has alienated uh, pretty much all Republican voters in his state who he will need. Uh, and arguably, he wouldn't gain any Democratic voters who are going to vote for his opponent no matter what. Right. So that's the bind that people like Gardner find themselves in. But the calculus for someone like uh, Susan Collins is very different. Because? Uh, because she's in a, a sort of a state with a very unique political culture and balance. Uh, it's really a one-third, one-third, one-third state. And Republicans, Republicans in Maine are not like Republicans in Alabama. Right, right. right? And, and, and in Alaska... Um, Murkowski uh, was um, she, she was defeated in the Republican primary last time around, so she ran as an independent, and she is uh, she's quite free of uh, the Republican Party. So. And and someone like Mitt Romney, yeah, you know, in the most simultaneously one of the most Republican states in the country and one of the most anti anti-Trump Republican states in the country. Mm, uh, less so than it used to be. Less so than it used to be, but but Romney, I think, has a lot of room to maneuver, including the fact that it's quite early in his term, mm. and including the fact that he must be thinking now more about his historical legacy than about his political future. Um, I'd like to be pleasantly surprised about Romney, but I don't know. I, I, I think the world of him as a human being, and I think he's led an exemplary life. Um, but I don't think that his partic- his political courage has necessarily always been 
in evidence. So no, he reminds me of what <laughs> you know the late Abba Ibn Iban used to say about yeah. the Palestinians that he never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Yeah, so we'll exactly. we'll see. I think in the end, the question about witnesses in the Senate is a tempest in a teapot for some of the reasons Bill mentioned. The big vote is the final vote. Will there be one or more Republicans to join Democrats, break ranks, condemn this president, and make it a bipartisan vote to remove him from office? And if I were Mitt Romney and I were thinking perhaps like John McCain, biding my time for the moment when it really matters, that would be the moment I'd be looking at. Hmm. Well, Stay tuned, people. Damon, did you want to add anything to this uh, grubby discussion of uh, witnesses <laughs> and uh, well, tactics? Particular. I mean, okay. The only thing I would add is that as an observer, a fairly close observer of the political scene, I will say that uh, I'm confessing that I am feeling uh, impeachment fatigue. And I, as all pundits do, like to assume that my feelings are uh, represented throughout the country. Uh, <laughs> no, so what you I, do. I would well. say I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, people don't really care about this very much. And there was evidence of that before back in, in November, but I bet it's more so. So things like, was Pelosi right to... Uh, delay sending uh, sending over the articles of impeachment and the managers. I don't think really anyone outside of the kind of political junkie scene uh, that we all live in cared about that or really even knew it happened. And frankly, if she hadn't done that, the end result wouldn't have been any different. It's only the 16th of January and Congress was on recess for weeks. So it's not as if we'd be like done with the trial by now if she had sent uh, sent stuff over earlier. So I yeah. um, I don't really think much, any of this really matters very much. And even if Romney switches at the end and votes to remove Trump, uh, you know, that, that would certainly make him the most loathed Republican in the country for many Republican voters. But beyond that, I don't really know what it gets anybody. It, it would make him a hero in this office. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. And I, I would admire him even more than I do. But uh, that uh, isn't worth a lot. I would, yeah. I would amend what Damon said by just one word. It's in, out in the country, based on everything I've been hearing, including... You know, from someone just this morning who was going door to door in New Hampshire talking to voters, a large number of voters. It's not impeachment fatigue. It's impeachment indifference. Right. It is simply not a question that many people outside of Washington, D.C. are mentioning as a top concern. Their top concerns are their top personal concerns mm -hmm. and not this. Mm -hmm. Um. Damon, I would just follow up to one thing you said about um, pundits uh, who think that the country thinks what they think. I would say the, the usual way that, that columnists handle that is that they say, I was in a taxi drive. I was in a taxi the other day, and the driver said, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they fill uh, in. The Thomas Friedman maneuver. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> all right. Well, um, let's... Uh, <laughs> Let's move on um, to uh, the uh, foreign policy uh, situation. Some of it is semi-foreign and semi-domestic, uh, but uh, before getting to the really juicy stuff. Um, so uh, 
around the world, um, but specifically this week, we had, um, I don't know, I'm no expert in what goes on in Russia, but it sure looks like Putin has just um, greased the skids for his president for life plan. Um, he he got he he got into some trouble. People may not remember this. Um, he uh, when he came back, he 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 stepped out of the presidency and he put uh, Medvedev in his place. And then in 2012, he came back as president in what many people believe was an unfree election. And there were massive demonstrations all across Russia protesting this. And he blamed Hillary Clinton for that. He believed uh, that she was responsible for those demonstrations. And, and according to some sources, he, uh, at, that was the moment at which he decided that he would have it in for her and do whatever he could to make sure she didn't get elected. Um, but in any case, he wants to avoid the, uh, or so goes the interpretation, he wants to avoid another shock to the system where people think he's gone, but he's really not. So he's telegraphing. Right now, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to have this new council that I'm going to be the head of after I'm no longer president. But of course, all the real power will be with the council. What I don't understand is this business of the whole cabinet resigning. Does anybody else have anything to offer on that or disagree with my interpretation of what's happened? Uh, if you're asking whether Putin wants to be leader of Russia for life, uh, it's hard to disagree with you. And it's just a question of the inst arranging the institutional details so that you know, he can do that with the least fuss. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not going to argue with the tactical choices that he made about how to do that. He's a lot closer to the situation than I am. So, uh, I mean, it's but it's not un it's not unusual, for example, for incoming prime ministers of the same party as the outgoing prime minister to request the resignation of everybody and then reappoint 75 or 80 uh, percent and shuffle the, shuffle the remaining 20 or 25 percent around or out. So I think it's with so many moving, moving parts in a mass resignation, I think it becomes easier for the single top leader in order to rearrange things to his convenience. You know what's um, turned out to be a surprise, um, especially for those of us who at the end of the Cold War were so enthusiastic and encouraged about the spread of technologies like at the time it was the fax machine and uh, later the internet where we thought this will democratize information, these repressive states will no longer be able to control what their people know and um, this will be a great boon to freedom. And um, it's, it's interesting to see that first of all, with all of this profusion of free information, we've, of course, created quite a cesspool online, uh, in addition to the good things. Um, but also, it doesn't seem to have limited the capacity of repressive states to control, at least largely control, the information that their people get. I mean, you can, uh, in China, um, they, they can keep lids on what people know. And in Russia, most people still get their news from the official sources. Um, so this, um, the, the, the information age has not panned out the way we hoped. Americans are, especially lately, naive about where freedom comes from. 
back to our theme of the day, institutions and hollowing out, and Yuval Levin's book, which makes this case very eloquently. We've come to imagine that where we get freedom is just a lot of individuals doing a lot of different things, and somehow it all sorts itself out, and we're all free and great things happen, and that was the model of the internet. And what we forgot there, because institutions are so invisible in society, is all the intermediaries, the gatekeepers, the nodes, the institutions that channel all those impulses, help us to work together, help do some gatekeeping. In science, it's all the universities and the journals and the conferences and all the professional training that go into sorting through all the discourse. In media, it's all the newsrooms, the professional editors that say, have you checked this? Is it really true? The many layers you have to go through. Flattening all the institutions um, and, and just saying everybody do everything is a recipe for chaos, and that's what we got. So now the question is, can we build institutions for these systems that will do the jobs of organizing them in a non-sociopathic way? And that very much remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. And is the rise of strongmen leaders around the world a response to this chaos, the seeking order? Yes, in the sense, first, they love chaos. That's why Donald Trump and Stephen Bannon foment it. And second, because chaos is a wonderful environment for the emergence of these people. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. But you know, I think we have to define chaos carefully. Uh, there's, there's a thesis that goes all the way back to Hannah Arendt in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, a thesis for which contemporary social scientists have developed a fair amount of evidence that goes something like this, that when you have, when you have dense social ties at the local or regional level, sort of horizontal ties among human beings, the vertical relationship to leaders becomes less important psychologically and perhaps even uh, you know, in, in reality. When you have a more atomized public that you know, feels beleaguered, feels the chaos because these ties and attachments with their fellow human beings face-to-face -face in local circumstances have been attenuated, at that point, there is an expanded opportunity for leaders, national leaders, to emerge and say that they will be the antidote to this felt chaos and that they will be a source of meaning for people whose lives have been drained of meaning through the diminution of social ties. And uh, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have taken that that thesis so seriously, except, but for the fact that contemporary social science, starting with Robert Putnam but not ending there, has documented exactly that kind of attenuation of social ties. And here we are. Um, Tim Carney, uh, the yes. Washington Examiner, had a very good book called Alienated America, where he traced uh, how various counties in the country mm -hmm. voted in 2016. And he found that those where uh, local institutions, families, churches, community organizations were weakest, at least in the Republican primaries he's talking about, uh, they, they were the ones that had the highest percentage right. of Trump voters. No, Carney's book made a big impression on me. At least yeah. that, that part of the argument made a big impression. I think, yeah. I think he's really on to something. Um, and if I don't, if you will forgive me blowing my own horn, um, my book, Sex Matters, <laughs> talked about the importance of families mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, Carney talks about communities and, and he's, I think, 
right about the importance of communities, but I would go back even a step be before that and say, without strong families, you can't have strong communities. And so because people are living more alone and because they're failing to form lifelong relationships and to commit, and they, they have these serial relationships where they go in and out of relationships, they have some kids and then they go on and everything is very chaotic in their personal lives. Um, they fail to form the, the basic familial units that then communities can form around, um, and without which communities find it very difficult to be uh, strong and healthy. All right, well, we've reached the end, uh, so we'll, we'll, we will do our final segment on something that uh, we think needs a more attention or something we agree with from the other side or disagreed with on our own side. I will start this time and uh, because it's, it's kind of related. Uh, in the Democratic debate this week, um, there was the obligatory segment on childcare, and every single candidate um, went on and on about what they would do to subsidize childcare in America, make it free, make it almost free, and so on. Get more mothers out into the workforce. And um, I, I, I have to say I missed Andrew Yang, who, um, when he was on the debate stage, a couple times made the point that we should not forget the parents who choose to work full-time by raising their own children and nothing that we do to help parents pay for daycare should neglect the parents who are raising their children themselves. That is the choice of most parents is to, at least when their children are very young, is to um, have at least one parent uh, caring for them. And, uh, and if you look at the statistics, it's something like 70% of mothers with young children would like to only work part-time or not work at all while their kids are very young. And that is being overlooked. It's a simple thing to say that we should give a child tax credit rather than saying we should subsidize um, uh, uh, childcare uh, so that other people can take care of your children. Did you have something? I did. You, you nailed me looking at my phone, and here's the reason, Mona. What I came equipped with to draw everyone's attention to was a new book by Yuval Levin <laughs> called, uh, but uh, we've talked about we've that. We've talked about so it. So I had to That's scramble okay. and come up with some, something else. Do you else. want a minute? We can go to the others and we can no, come back no, to No, no, I've, I've got already. it. already. Okay, you're Though proud. Bill will have to help me with the figures, which I was looking up. Isn't it interesting that we're going to add a trillion dollars to the national debt this year and no one's noticed? Oh, yeah. This is at a time of prosperity. This is the end of the business cycle. This is when we're supposed to not be running deficits. A trillion dollars. And how much has Donald Trump added to the national debt? That was what I was trying to find out. Does anyone know that number? Is it like $4.7 Something like that? Well, the... The total the total budget deficit in the first three years of his presidency is something like two and a half trillion dollars, right? Because we just we just hit a trillion for the first time in his presidency, but not the last time. Not the mm. last time. So <laughs> this is an extraordinary mortgaging of the future of America, and isn't it remarkable that no one's talking about it? Mm. Uh, Just thinking about the interest on the debt that is wasted money that could be spent on other things is criminal. But see, this is, you know, 
I mean, rather, since I too have already mentioned what I came armed with, namely Tim Carney's book. Oh, you yeah, came armed with that? I came armed with that because oh. I just I just finished it, and frankly, I I learned a lot more from it than I expected to. And my hats my hats off to him yes. for doing for doing not only quantitative research but a, a lot of conversations with, with with a lot of people. But just on Jonathan's point for a minute, uh, I actually think it's utterly unremarkable that we've reached this pass uh, because. The majority sentiment in both political parties is now that deficits don't matter. That's right. We're, and sotto voce, even if they do, A, it's a political negative to talk about the issue, and B, we have no bleeping idea of what to do about it. So why should we talk about it? Because neither political party is willing to do what would have to be done in order to take a serious run at the budget deficit. I was actually talking to a political pundit in 2016 and mentioned the fact that Donald Trump doesn't even pay lip service to the idea of uh, reducing our uh, our debt or spending. And he said, but Mona, that's not popular. And he wasn't kidding. No, of course he wasn't kidding. He wasn't kidding. No. He meant, you know, what, what do you expect? I mean, the, a politician is not going to suggest but, something but that's not popular. Let me just correct what you just said slightly. In the course of the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump said that if he had eight years in office, he would pay off the national debt. Yeah, he said that at various times. Yes, <laughs> it, you know, we all we all get puppies and rainbows and lollipops. Okay, Damon. Um, well, the best thing I've read this week uh, is uh, an article in uh, Harper's that actually I think just came out uh, today. Um, uh, by Thomas Meany, a very smart guy, titled Trumpism After Trump, Will the Movement Outlive the Man? It's a very smart uh, kind of magazine feature that looks at that question of what is happening on the right uh, and what will happen once Trump has left the stage. And he does this by way of, a, you could say, a close reading of the National Conservatism Conference from last July, which happened in Washington. I was there for part of it. Um, and so it's it's a very smart, interesting, uh, thoughtful uh, analysis of, of that important question. But it's especially pressing, given that uh, just this week it has been announced that the second uh, meeting of the National Conservatism Conference will take place remarkably soon. I, I don't know when the last time I've seen a conference announced only two weeks or so before it, it actually happens, but it's going to happen in Rome in early February, February 4th. And on that stage, we will have people like Chris DeMuth, uh, who used to be uh, very closely uh, tied to the American Enterprise Institute, Newt Gingrich, who needs no introduction, sharing a stage with fellows and, and ladies and gentlemen like Marianne Marichal, who's the granddaughter of uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen in France, Prime Minister Victor Orban, and Matteo Salvini, the uh, head of the League Party, a kind of quasi-slash-neo-fascist party uh, in Italy. So um, that's certainly one vision of Trumpism after Trump. So if you want to think about that rather dark theme, I think the Thomas Meany essay in Harper's is definitely worth your time. I think I'd rather think about Harry and Megan leaving the uh, <laughs> royal family. <laughs> Kittens and rainbows. Or, Kittens yeah. and or, rainbows. or Bernie Sanders and yeah. Elizabeth Warren yeah. uh, tearing late, each other apart. Of course, the latest turn of that screw that, that, that is the 
impending court battle involving Megan and Megan's estranged father. Yes. You know, who, you know, her, you know, her, one of, one of her letters to him showed up in the British tabloids. How could that have happened? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did, I will confess, I haven't, I haven't followed this as closely as some I, uh, at all, in fact, but I did read one piece that amused me where it was describing um, Canada's quite strict rules for uh, allowing immigrants mm-hmm. who want to come to country. You have to you have to pass a series of tests. You either have to have a job on offer. Uh, you have to bring a certain amount of, uh, uh, you have to have means. Um, and if they're not going to be accepting any money from their family, then they actually don't come with money and they might have trouble getting Canadian uh, work permits. Oh, no. Haven't you heard? Haven't you heard about the new Sussex Royal brand of toiletries? <laughs> I'm not making this up. <laughs> hey, listen. I, I I wish we all had such problems. That's all I can say. <laughs> all right. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been great. See you next week. And thank you, Jonathan, for joining us. We I hope you'll come back. I'd love to. Okay. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye.